0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Washington Post, this is Colby.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCremmen from The
1: Washington Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Carlos Lozada, in from our team powers. It's Thursday, August 29th. Today, President Trump says he wants a border wall by Election Day. What credit card companies are doing with your data? And how immigration rhetoric is affecting Latinos?
2: that wall build that wall build that wall build that wall the army corps of engineers and customs and border protection have completed 60 miles of barriers since the president took office now he's told his supporters that he's going to complete 500 miles by next year's election the chant now should be finish the wall as opposed to build the wall because we're building a lot of wall so they have a long way to go and he's under a lot of pressure to deliver on that campaign promise. That's Nick Miroff. I cover the Department of Homeland Security and immigration enforcement for the Washington Post. Nick says that President Trump
0: is telling subordinates that the wall has to get built, even if that means bypassing the law.
2: And the president has been telling his aides to simply take the land and worry about The legality of it later, anticipating that the government will be sued. And one of the most extraordinary things about this whole process is that the president has been telling aides who raise these worries in meetings, don't worry, I'll pardon you, telling everyone to just go forward and not to worry about the potential consequences.
0: Can he do that? Can he just say, like, I know you're going to be breaking the law because of what I'm asking you to do, but it's cool?
2: No, he can't. And we know that in the past, when he said this, for example, his former chief of staff, John Kelly, would tell people after the meetings not to listen to the president, that that was not sound and that he didn't really want them to do anything improper or illegal. So the requests of this kind have put the officials who hear them into very difficult and awkward positions, not knowing whether they should do what the president of the United States is asking them, or if they should uh, follow the strict letter of the law. But that is the kind of pressure that the president is putting on officials in his administration, you know, because he's so determined to get this project completed by next year's vote.
0: So obviously, General Kelly is, is, is long gone. Is there any official in high places uh, pushing back against this?
2: Everything what we've been hearing indicates that the president's orders are being taken very seriously. I know that U.S. Customs and Border Protection is also pushing very hard to fulfill his goals. They say that they are on track to complete 450 miles and that they're comfortable with the process. We know that some, some others are not. It's going to involve a real extraordinary effort to get those additional 400 miles in place in the next 14 months. And I think, you know, there, there's a, a kind of a mix of people within the administration who are, who are willing to, to kind of go along with this, but others who, uh, again, are very very concerned with the pace and the possibility of, you know, particularly of legal consequences of going at this kind of speed.
0: Nick, if they get to 450 miles or, or 500 miles, do we have a sense of how much of that will be, in fact, replacement? wall rather than than new construction?
2: Yeah. So of the 450 miles that Customs and Border Protection and the Army Corps say they will be able to deliver by next year, we know that about 110 of those 450 miles are going to be new barrier, meaning installing fencing in an area where there was no structure whatsoever before. The rest of that is what they call replacement Barrier, so it's going in in places where the the fencing they have now is either dilapidated or is what's called vehicle barrier, so like a, like what a Normandy style uh, steel barrier that is meant to stop vehicles, but but can't really um, stop people from climbing over that kind of thing. So 110 new miles, and then that would leave uh, what 340 replacement miles.
0: Even if you're able to get past the logistical and and legal hurdles here does he have the funds to do this
2: the secretary of defense mark esper is expected to sign off on 3.6 billion dollars in reprogrammed pentagon funding that includes the funds that courts have have ruled that the president can rightly reallocate for this project so that 3.6 billion is going to be the big difference maker and is going to be the you know the the cash needed to really you know get those several hundred miles Of fencing in place. I should add that the president's changing design requests and requirements are adding to that price tag. He has now directed the Army Corps and Customs and Border Protection to paint the new fencing black. And he's also asked for the removal of the anti-climb panels that have been a fairly standard feature on the new barriers. So he wants the top of the fence to be spiky and pointed. He believes that this is going to be a greater deterrent to would-be climbers. And so the black paint, the spiky cuts into the steel bollards and the, the additional height of up to 30 feet in some places is adding to the cost and potentially reducing the amount of fencing that the Army Corps and DHS can can put in place by next year.
0: Now, how much of this is related to appearances and the, the suggestion of progress on the wall? Uh, your, your story mentions that the White House social media director is really eager to get video footage of the wall being built, of, of construction crews, so that they can, they can tweet it out to the president's followers.
2: That's right. I mean, I think all you have to do is watch some of his rallies where he boasts about how much uh, of the wall that he's going to complete by next year, um, and and you know, fueling chance of finish the wall, finish the wall. You know, this is a, a recurring bedrock theme of his rallies, and he views it as uh, a promise to his supporters that he has to fulfill. He feels. I think that if he if he were to to fail in in kind of meeting these ambitious goals, that that would be a defeat and a disappointment. And so, given how anxious he he is, I think about poll numbers and the prospects of you know a recession that would would also uh, be a drag on his re-election prospects. He's really pushing hard for this particular campaign promise to you know to come to fruition.
0: And the firms that are contracted to. Do some of the construction? Do they feel and you know, based on your on, on your speaking to them, do they feel that they can get this done by by election day, twenty twenty?
2: I think they do. They're under a lot of, of pressure too. But you know, one of the things we've heard is that the all of the kind of back end work has been done over the past two years to um, you know to to get the contracts lined up um, and and to get things to get things ready financially, logistically and that you know over the next year or so they'll really be able to pick up the pace of of construction that said you know there's a lot of uh, private land that they still I think need to acquire particularly in south texas so one of the reasons we're going to see them making more progress on replacement sections is because those are the easiest that's the really the lowest hanging fruit of this whole process they're just going in and replacing the structure in areas where they already have right away they already you know, have roads, things like that. So, you know, something to watch is going to be how much of, you know, you know, what what we call new barrier they're able to put in over the next year.
0: There's a memorable moment in the art of the deal where Trump is trying to impress some investors about how he's made a lot of progress on a on a construction site. And so he ordered the crew just to dig up holes wherever they could and move dirt back and forth. And that way it would seem like there was work getting done. And reading your story reminded me of uh, of that episode, especially because they want to be able to tweet and show video of work getting done.
2: The message of the wall is just as important in some ways as the structure itself. We can never lose sight of the fact that for the president, you know, it's much more than a fence. It's the foundation of his first campaign. It's this kind of core promise that he feels like he made to his His most ardent supporters. And so I think that also explains a lot of the urgency he feels right now to build as much of the the barrier as possible and the reason that he's looking at what's completed so far as being insufficient.
0: Nick Miroff covers immigration enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security for The Post.
3: I set up an experiment where I went to Target a couple of blocks from
0: the Post's San Francisco Bureau. This is Jeffrey Fowler. He's a tech columnist for The Post. And he's made it his mission to figure out the secret life of our data. He's looked at everything from the information our browser extensions are leaking, to what our phones do while we're asleep, to the recordings that your Alexa keeps of you. And most recently, Jeff decided to look at what happens to our credit card data after every transaction. So he went to Target and he bought two bananas.
3: One banana I paid for with the Chase Amazon Prime Visa card, and the other one I paid for with a new Apple card. It's a kind of credit card that the uh, consumer technology giant just came out with. And then I tried to figure out who all got to mine and share and sell the data from me swiping the cards to buy those bananas. And it turns out quite a lot of different people got their hands on it. It ended up going to the bank, who got to share it with lots of different other kinds of companies. It ended up going to the credit card network. It ended up going to the retailer I was shopping at, Target. It ended up going to the companies that make the point of sale system and process the transactions for the retailer. It went into the mobile wallet operator on the phone that I used to pay with. It also even went to apps and financial services that I might have plugged my data into. Everything from services like Mint that help you track your finances, to Gmail, which collects receipts and puts it into your Google account.
0: Now, it won't shock anyone that you know credit card companies are themselves collecting our data. But what are all these other entities doing with the information that they're getting from these purchases?
3: Yeah, I think the surprise to me was that by law, credit card companies are allowed to share this data with pretty much whoever they want to. Of course, credit card companies and banks have always had to report to the government if they think that there are any shady transactions going on. Um, People, I think, now assume that as well. But the one law in this space um, actually grants the right to these banks to share our personal information, our transaction information with anybody else, any companies that they want to, so long as they provide us some kind of notice. And that usually comes in the form of a piece of paper you get in the mail once a year and immediately put in the trash. It (laughs) says at the top, facts on it in all capital letters. And then it goes through, and in the case of my Chase Amazon Prime Visa Rewards card, it lists about seven different categories of companies that the bank was allowed to share data about my transaction with. And the last of those was sort of the most insidious category. It says, with non-affiliates for the purposes of marketing. Um, who are non-affiliates, you ask? Anyone. It just <laughs> means a company that Chase uh, does not own. And it also uh, reserved the rights to share that information with companies it does own. So literally, the, the bank has the legal right to share information about your transaction with
0: anyone. But non-affiliates sounds... Uh... So much more sort of innocuous, right? It's genteel, right? Oh, it's just a (laughs) non-affiliate. Now, are there any innocuous reasons for this kind of transfer of data? You know, I mean, is there anything in it for us as consumers, like, you know, like we get cash back or airline miles? Is there a trade-off of privacy in exchange for what? Sure. Data has all sorts of different purposes.
3: And, you know, uh, credit card companies and the companies that serve them do lots of useful things for us, including helping to prevent fraud. And of course, we want them to be able to exchange data and and share it for that purpose. But that's not really what I was counting in this experiment. I was just looking at the companies that are using this data to learn our behaviors and market to us and send us junk mail and try to get inside our heads as consumers. Now, there is a, a good debate that we could have about the value of trading your data for, let's say, more airline miles or let's say, you know, more cash back. And we could have that debate. But the problem I have with this space is that how are we supposed to make that judgment when we don't really even know where the data is going? And that takes me back to my experiment. So when I read this privacy policy from Chase, and I went to the bank as a columnist with the Washington Post and said, okay, who are those non-affiliates? Who are you sharing my data with? They wouldn't tell me. I went to Amazon to ask them what data they received from Chase and that co-branded card. And of course, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, also owns the Washington Post, and they would not tell me specifically. Pretty much nobody in this space would give me a straight answer about who they're sharing my data with. And if we don't know the answer to that question, how are we supposed to be making, you know, informed choices as consumers about this data handoff?
0: Now, how much of protecting myself, my, my data, is in my control? Is it a matter of adjusting, you know, privacy settings or reading all that fine print that I never read? You know, what, what can individual consumers do?
3: You do have some controls over this when it comes to your privacy. But well, first of all, it's pretty patchwork and you're going to have to dedicate some time to doing it. And in my column in the post recently, I listed a whole bunch of links you can click and phone number you can call to, to try to deal with this stuff. These companies say it's fine for them to do all this sharing of our data. It's fine for them to mine it for their own purposes because they give us some kind of opt-out. But they know that most consumers are never really going to take the opt-out. 99% of us stick with the defaults, you know, with many things on the internet, many things with data, the devil's in the defaults, and they know that. And so I don't think it's a very good answer to say that, well, we could, you know, you could go in and, and, and opt back out of it. You know, if you're taking information about my life and sharing it with someone else or using it to make money, I ought to expressly tell you that I want to opt into that first. And in very few cases are these financial companies doing that. They're opting us in by default and then giving us the choice to get out if we want.
0: Is this just kind of the price we're paying for living with this technology, for the ease of a a cashless society?
3: Look, I think that's a false choice. We don't have to give up our privacy. We don't have to allow our data to be tracked and monetized just to live in the 21st century. This is a situation that in many ways Silicon Valley has created because it's figured out that uh, we are so enamored with the conveniences that we can get out of technology that we won't go in and and opt out, right? And and I think we need to push back against that idea. The Business doesn't have to work this way. Every time that data gets collected and handed over to somebody else, it has the opportunity to be stolen. And we've certainly seen that happen a lot. It seems like every time I write one of these stories about uh, where data flows out of our hands, uh, within a couple of days afterwards, we have a, a big news story that says, oh, that company just got hacked into. And this data that is being passed along is really intimate. You could learn a lot about somebody by following what they spend their money on. You could learn enough, actually, to blackmail them, depending on the kinds of stuff that they were into buying. And, you know, that speaks to also the balance of power uh, between us and corporations, you know, yes, data helps target where I bought my banana, you know, know how to better serve me. But the flip side of that is it changes the dynamic in terms of the, the amount of information that they have over me. Now they know, for example, exactly how high they can raise the price on that banana before I might bolt or how much crappy customer service I'll put up with before I bolt as a customer. So it's really changing the balance of power. And I don't think that anybody would want that as a consumer.
0: I have to say, you're making cash seem a lot more attractive.
3: I know, right? I've started paying a lot more with cash since going down this path.
0: Jeff Fowler is a tech columnist for The Washington Post. And now, one more thing.
1: So I felt it was really important after the El Paso shooting to make sure that we were centering the voices of Latinos because it was possibly one of the largest attacks on this specific ethnic group in a long time. So I felt like it was important to talk about how the community was feeling and, you know, how they were feeling even before this happened. My name is Rachel Hatsi Panagos, and I write for the About Us newsletter.
2: When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. This is an invasion. When you see these caravans starting out with 20,000 people, that's an invasion. I was badly criticized for using the word invasion. It's an invasion.
1: What research shows is that with... President Trump's constant disparaging comments about Latinos, it's really begun to take a toll on this community. And from health officials who say that Latinos have felt increased anxiety and depression, one health study showed that Latinos are experiencing increased premature birth rates to individuals just saying that they've felt very anxious, and that's regardless of their immigration status. You know, with with all the anti-immigrant rhetoric, I, I really worried about my son. I spoke with Juana Tejera about her son Joey and fears that she had for him. She lives in El Paso, Texas, and she told me about how in the last few years she's had a lot of anxiety about her son and his safety moving throughout the world. A teenager,
0: a young Latino teenage man, and, you know, being outside El Paso, even though he's lived in the South, he's lived abroad, frankly worried with all the heated rhetoric.
1: When Joey was going away on a band trip about a year ago, she was really nervous that he would face racism when he was moving throughout parts of the country that aren't majority Hispanic like El Paso is. He would be probably in
0: places outside El
1: Paso, you know but he would have to confront racism or you know maybe violent rhetoric. When Joey was out on this trip, One of his friends gave him a MAGA hat and Joey kind of joked, oh, I'll wear this for protection. My mom has been like really worried about me. And his mom eventually heard about it and it made her even more nervous because she thought like, well, why should my son have to have a hat on to feel protected and feel safe in a country that he's lived in his whole life?
0: Maybe they they really did believe, hey, you know, if you're a Trump supporter, no one, people will think you're okay. (laughs) You know, it's like a know you're one of us, or something.
1: And so, fast forward to a year later, she told me about hearing the El Paso shooting and saying how traumatizing it was for her to hear that this trauma that she was fearing for her son actually ended up happening at home and not while he was out in a different city.
0: It's a terrifying feeling. It's like every <laughs> you get angry at the at the nasty rhetoric and you know the the mean talk, but that people are actually taking. That's to heart and and, and murdering people who, who look like me, who look like
1: my husband, who look like my son. So the El Paso shooter echoed a lot of President Trump's language about Hispanic invaders and Latinos coming into the United States and being an invading army. I think a lot of times what gets lost in talking about the Latinx community is that They are not a group that votes in a monolith. They're not a group that all comes from the same country or backgrounds or races. And because of this, they, of course, bring different perspectives to politics in the U.S. Some people feel as though President Trump was not responsible for this rhetoric, especially, of course, people who vote Republican. And specifically, one of the victims in the El Paso shooting, his family members had said that He had voted for Trump and was a Trump supporter, and so they wanted to make sure that these deaths weren't politicized. And someone I spoke to said that she did not feel as though we could say whether or not the president was responsible because, of course, hate has always existed in this world.
0: Some people will feel deeply traumatized by the violence and its connection to A hatred of Latinos, a sort of a racialized hatred that sees us as subhuman and threatening, and other people will simply not have noticed.
1: Ian Hanley Lopez, who is a professor at Berkeley, talked a lot about dog whistle attacks and how they manifest in our current political climate. The
0: basic strategy is to promote a narrative of racial threat in a way that allows you to deny that that's what you're doing.
1: So when President Trump is talking about things like Hispanic invaders or says that there's an infestation in Baltimore or tells Congresswomen to go back to their countries, these are attacks where he's not expressly mentioning racial epithets or calling things by name, but they're intended to perk up the ears of his most ardent base and some of them who maybe do have racial animus.
0: Rachel Hatsipanagos writes for the About Us newsletter. You can find a link to subscribe at postreports.com. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, what some schools are doing to change the way students learn about America's history of slavery.
2: I just was realizing how much ignorance there was just about our basic history about slavery, and really not just ignorance of people I spoke with, but my own ignorance as well, just that um, there was a lot of history that I was just unfamiliar with. And so it started me thinking about how, how we even teach this history of slavery in our schools.
0: I'm Carlos Lozada,